Welcome to The Bull and the Bear, a money and markets podcast. We give you the advice you need to know to make investing safe and profitable. With The Bull and the Bear podcast, you'll get exclusive access to some of the top thinkers, analysts, advisors, and gurus in the investment business. And now for your hosts, Matt Clark and Charles Sizemore. And welcome to another episode of the Bull and the Bear podcast. I'm Matt Clark here on MoneyAndMarkets.com. Just want to uh, make sure everyone is aware before I, I give me the give you the spiel. Uh, we are uh, in terms of podcast syndication, we are in more places than I can even count at this point. And I, I didn't even know there were this many places out there. But obviously, the big ones were on Apple Podcasts, we're on Google Podcasts, we're on Spotify, we're now on iHeartRadio, and, and a bevy of other uh, podcast syndications. So by you know, please go on there, uh, give us a review, uh, let us know what you think. If you have questions questions for myself, for Charles Sizemore, for Adam O'Dell, for anyone at all, by all means, put them on there. We'd love to, uh, we'd love to get your feedback. Also check out our YouTube channel. Just go to youtube.com and uh, type in the bull and the bear podcast. And uh, we will be the one with the green logo. Just go there and you can see all of our podcasts on video. Uh, where you can see our bright shining faces instead of uh, just hearing our dulcet tones as, as it were. So, uh, I want to bring in, uh, my, uh, my co-host Charles Sizemore who, uh, freshly cut Charles, Charles Sizemore. And I mean that in a good way. He's, he's made me upset because he's got a haircut and I don't, and I need one and he's got one and I'm mad about it. So, and I'm not even going to talk about, uh, money markets, chief investment strategist, Adam O'Dell's haircut. Cause that, that just doesn't even qualify as a haircut. So first off, welcome guys. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> thanks for coming on and, uh, uh, happy Friday to you guys. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. And, you know, um, it's been an interesting short week. Um, you know, we had the holiday markets were closed on Monday. Uh, and, and, but it's been an interesting week. Not necessarily. I mean, the market has been interesting. It's been up and it's been down. It looks like it looks like markets are going to close up for another week and hopefully close out the month of May uh, with a second straight month of gains, which is great news. But it's uh, it's interesting in terms of how the market is reacting compared to everything else. We'll get to that in a second. But uh, over the last couple days, uh, you know, political strife and and we all well know the fact that politi- politics can drive the market just as well as anything else. Um, political strife is, is is starting to really take shape. We thought we were kind of past this in January when the phase one trade agreement between the U.S. and China uh, was 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 put on paper and, and, and finalized. But then things happen. The coronavirus kicked in and you start hearing political rhetoric in terms of that. I, I don't want to get too much into the politics of it because that's not really what we're here for. But what is what is interesting is that, you know, U.S.-China trade relations are are looking to be simmering at best and getting ready to be turned up to a 350 degree flamethrower um, at any time now as uh, it hasn't happened yet but uh, the president is, is expected to give an address at some point in time on Friday to uh, in response to uh, the Chinese uh, National Congress the, the rubber stamping governmental arm of the Chinese uh, of, the, of the Chinese government uh, a, a new bill that basically really clamps down on Hong Kong and, and I'll give a little bit a bit of background. Just and so just to be a little more elementary, but the British had control of Hong Kong for 99 years. That was part of their uh, of their agreement. And by all means, guys, if I miss this, if I mess this up, tell me because I I may not necessarily knock it out of the park here. But for 99 years, the the British had control of Hong Kong as a colony, and then in I don't remember the year, but they turned it back over to the Chinese government as part of the agreement. Very similar to what the U.S. did with the Panama Canal. Uh, they had rights over the Panama Canal for 99 years, turned it over to the Pan- Panamanian government so on and so forth. As part of that agreement, Hong Kong was set up as a special administrative zone. And what this is, is it makes it kind of uh, separate from the Chinese 
government in Beijing, which is which is communist. In fact, Hong Kong has its own legislative branch. They have its own Congress, if you will, uh, head by a chief executive who's Carrie Lam at this point. Uh, and, and and so basically, it puts Hong Kong with China, but makes it autonomous from China. And what that has allowed other countries to do is to give Hong Kong preferential trade status. So let's say, for example, with the United States, they have sanctions or, or they have uh, tr- uh, you know trade restrictions on Chinese goods. That's not carrying over to Hong Kong. Hong Kong is exempt from those. So it, it, it makes Hong Kong much more financially diverse than Beijing uh, or even Shanghai. Now, what has happened is, and I, I know it's, it like sounds like a history 101 lesson, and I'm just boring to tears, I don't want to do that, but, but now what has happened is the Chinese government has essentially started to erode those, uh, those, that special administrative status away from Hong Kong to bring it more in fold, partly because of protests against, uh, uh, you know, uh, against the leadership in Hong Kong, partly against, because of protests against the, the leadership in Beijing. And the Chinese Party, uh, the Communist Party, uh, yesterday, I guess today, uh, went ahead and, and, and approved the bill that would allow uh, Chinese government to set up facilities in Hong Kong. This would include, you know, Chinese, uh, you know, the, the military. This would include intelligence arms, things like that. Uh, it includes punishment for sedition, all, all these sorts of things. And, and uh, Secretary of State Mike, Mike Pompeo came out, I think, on Wednesday and said that basically Hong Kong is no longer a, a special administrative region. So what this has done is, is it has created this simmering powder keg um, uh, of, uh, of interest between Washington and Beijing in terms of you know trade going forward, relations going forward. And I want to bring you both in and kind of talk about that just, just briefly in terms of, of, of what this means. Recently, uh, there has been moves to... Uh, place higher restrictions or at least higher accountability on Chinese companies listed on uh, on stock market exchanges, whether it be the NASDAQ, whether it be the, the New York Stock Exchange, what have you. Um, and, and in fact, I had an article about a week or so ago um, about this. And it's actually good news for investors, to me anyway. But I want to get your take on, let's start with that first. Let's talk about the, the, the heavier regulations of Chinese companies. Because I know a lot of people have money tied up in companies like Alibaba, Billy Billy, uh, Baidu, uh, JD.com. There, there's a wealth of China Chinese companies that are trading uh, on American stock exchanges. So uh, I'll start with you, Charles, first. You know, I guess give me your take here first on the on the potential delisting, because one of the things is, is if the Chinese companies cannot prove that they aren't being controlled by the Chinese government, they will be delisted from exchanges, thus losing a revenue stream of American money. So I'll start with you, Charles. Give me, give me your take on that. Sure, sure. This is what I would call Cold War, Cold War 2.0. And yeah, the likelihood that the U.S. and China really come to blows over Hong Kong or anything is unlikely, but this is about as bad as relations have been between the two countries in, in, in 20 years or, or more. And a lot of it centers around technology. Well, it centers around two things, uh, political influence and technology. And uh, the United States has been the just undisputed uh, you know, standard bearer of, of the world for the last 20 years, as China has grown and uh, its economy has, you know, China's economy, uh, how do I put this? The rise of China was not concerning to us when China was a small developing country. Now that they're big, all of a sudden they are competing with us for influence. They have their Belt and Road Initiative where they're essentially buying the governments of uh, most of Asia, parts of Africa. Uh, with, you know, we're going to throw down infrastructure. We just kind of want you in our orbit. 
And it's been really successful. I mean, it's bought them a lot of loyalty. Uh, it's pulled would-be allies away from the U.S. and into China's orbit. That's very concerning if you're in Washington. But perhaps even more disturbing is there's this fear that the U.S. is losing technical dominance. And uh, I spend a lot of time in, in, in South America, and I have a good friend who's um, he runs part of uh, America Mobile in, in, in Peru. Uh, it's Carlos Slim's uh, telecom empire. And he was saying we had really no choice for who to go to for, for 5G infrastructure. We went with Huawei. Why? Because we can call these guys at three o'clock in the morning on Saturday night, and they're going to have a technician fixing whatever's broken because their workers are essentially slaves. Like they, they, they bring the workers from China to South America, and they don't see their families for three years. They are on call, ready to go at all times. Um, you know, Nokia, uh, Ericsson, they're not going to do that. I mean, that's, you know, they, they have, they actually have labor, labor law standards. <laughs> exactly. And so uh, what's what's happening is uh, Huawei is is muscling in and and dominating 5G, and that's very disturbing if you're the West because this is the technology we're basing all communications on for the next decade. Right. And if there, there's this fear that China could use Huawei infrastructure as basically a backdoor for espionage. Right. I don't know how true that is, honestly. I, I don't know. But well, that, that Wa is Huawei's denied it. There's been nothing out of the Chinese government, but the American government seems very, very steadfast in its belief that it can happen. And and I, you know, anything, yeah. anything is a possibility. And I think, you, you know, with the U.S. government, you're taking a better safe than sorry type posture here. But, but even if it's not, even if, if espionage can be mitigated, if that can be turned off, whatever, you still have the issue of technological superiority. If China is creating the standards on which the world will operate as technology for the next decade, that gives them a lot of power. And so that really comes to, you know, that comes back to the Chinese delisting. Why would we want to limit the options of investors? Well, the idea is, okay, if, if these, some of these Chinese companies are becoming too powerful, if they are becoming a strategic risk, then we effectively starve them of capital uh, so that they can't grow. That's that's it in a nutshell. Like, like that, that that's what's going on here. But I think you know, I, and I, I think you kind of touch on something. And I want to dovetail into that and bring in Adam O'Dell, chief investment strategist for Money and Markets. Um, you know, there are several American companies, Apple being probably the most noted, that has significant ties to China in terms of you know, third-party parts that go into laptops, phones, tablets, what have you. Um, and, and, and they're very heavily reliant on, on the Chinese economy to bring those parts to bear to either, you know, build the, build the final product in, in, in Vietnam or in, or in China or bring those parts over to the United States and have them build in Cupertino or, or whatever the case may be. So you've got these American companies. And like I say, I say Apple, but there are many others that are, that are heavily involved in, yeah, I mean, and they're heavily involved in the Chinese economy. If this comes to fruition and we do have a, a serious standoff uh, economically with with the Chinese, what are these American companies going to be looking at, Adam? I mean, what, what, I mean, it's going to be a serious, at least a supply chain blow, if nothing else. But I, I would imagine there's going to be more than that. Yeah, I mean, if you look back across the past decade or two, we've had uh, an increase in globalization. The supply chain has become more global and more uh, integrated in that way. Um, so that is an issue. And I think that along with President Trump's kind of protectionism views, 
um, we have been, and we probably will at a faster pace, be looking to onshore a lot of that production and a lot of bring a lot of the supply chain within our own country. And that just makes sense from a you know self isolator from a self protectionism standpoint. Um, you know, the biggest thing I want to kind of warn listeners and readers about uh, related to the U.S.-China tensions, the U.S.-China trade war, is we have to realize that rhetoric around the trade war has been happening for two plus years. And you really can't trade off of the news. I mean, one, one reason is that uh, how many times has Trump put out a tweet saying that he's close to a deal with Xi, and then we wait for confirmation from Xi and we don't get it. Um, so, you know, stocks will go up for a day or two following the tweet, and then they'll go down for three days hard uh, when, when we realize it was just a tweet. So th that's one factor. The other factor is, you know, you, you never know how much of that news, good or bad, is already priced into the stock market. So sometimes it's a case of, you know, buy the rumor, sell the, sell the fact. Um, so really trading off of this news flow of, you know, this week, is it good or bad, the relations between US and China, that's really a great way to, to burn through money and not really get the large trends. Um, one thing to look at over the longer term is I wrote a piece maybe a year or so ago uh, titled, I think, World War III. And I was basically saying that this, this big conflict between the U.S. and China, whether it's over trade or whether it's over intellectual property or whether it's over who started and, and didn't tell other people about the coronavirus, um, basically it's going to create what I believe is going to create divergences uh, between the major global economies. And what I mean by that is where's globalization kind of made a lot of the stock markets of countries all across the world kind of move more or less in lockstep with each other. Now we're kind of going the opposite direction where we expect different uh, countries and different uh, companies within those countries to move differently. Now, what's interesting is that even though the, the tensions have been focused on U.S. and China, we haven't seen a huge divergence between U.S. and Chinese stocks the way we've seen, like, for example, if you look at the past three months, uh, it's Mexico, it's Mexican stocks, it's Brazilian stocks that have that really sucked wind whereas Chinese and U.S. stocks are, are more or less on fairly even footing. Um, so you can blame that on the fact that oil prices are really down and, and Mexico and Brazil are highly dependent on oil. Uh, you could blame it on the fact that you know, Brazil's health healthcare system is, is nothing like it is uh, in the US, U.S. or elsewhere. But I think the point is that it's very difficult on a week-by-week -week basis to predict who's going to come out ahead um, or even pick one or two winners. But I think that by, if you have an expectation that there are going to start being, there's going to be divergences between these markets, that the correlations are going to come down and that it's really good environment for whether you call it stock picking or tactical sector allocation, it's really going to be a good environment ahead. And I'm not just talking about this month, I'm talking about for the years to come to really go where the trends are, to go where the momentum is, rather than trying to form some uh, high, you know, hypothesis and, and thesis on who's going to win in the end. So if I have, if I have my money tied up in, in Alibaba or Baidu or, or, or JD.com or any number of, of other Chinese stocks, whether it could be even a semiconductor stock or anything like that, um, if I'm invested in that now, hypothetically, I'm, I'm not, but hypothetically, if I am, Adam, is, I mean, I, what, you're, what you're telling me is that I should not be focusing on these 24-hour-a-day news cycles. I should be looking at a, a deeper trend to see if there is more divergence between American stocks and Chinese stocks to see if there's a trend there that tells me, okay, maybe it's a time to sell because other investors are starting to wean off of Chinese stocks and, and move more into uh, uh, you know, either other, other global stocks or American stocks. That, I'm, I'm understanding that correct, yes? 
Yes, I mean, basically what I'm saying is there's going to be a divergence at, at different points of time. So what I would like to do is put my money at two to three months at a time in wh whichever market's doing better. And if it catches on to a trend, then great. If not, you can kind of cut out of that position and rotate into what it, what is doing well. But uh, you know, the other thing is you don't have to be uh, invested in a small handful of the Chinese tech companies that are at the center of these controversies. Um, you can go into, you know, something like Yum China Holdings that does fast food. Um, you can buy a diversified uh, ETF that holds uh, Chinese shares across all industries like FXI. So, you know, there's a way to gain exposure to the to the Chinese market. In my belief, there's nothing unpatriotic that, um, about investing outside the United States. If anything, you're giving up returns if you invest solely in U.S. companies. Uh, and if you look ahead, I mean, if in the rearview mirror, U.S. companies have trounced just about everybody else over the past five, even 10 years. But that relationship is very cyclical. So that run is not going to be sustainable for the next five to 10 years. That doesn't mean U.S. stocks are going to go down 80 percent. Chinese are going to go up 800 percent. All it means is that we, you probably can find better value and, and some more, uh, you know, above average gains in in um, sectors outside the U.S. And, and, I, and I, I agree. I, I think that, you know, if you're an investor and you're trying to diversify, it, it, there's nothing wrong with looking outside of the United States for um, for other companies. There there are great companies that are based in England, in, in the Netherlands, in, in China, in, in other in other countries. I, you know, one, for example, one that IPO today, this is Pete's Coffee. Um, this is a, a Dutch based uh, company that um, initially think they had sold 17.1 million shares at a high end of 32 euro per share, which comes out to, I think, 35, $36. But essentially, it set their valuation at, get this, $17 billion. This is a coffee company in the Netherlands. I mean, and, 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 it, and it IPO today on the Netherlands market, on, on the uh, uh, euro stocks Netherlands market. And it has, it, as of this morning, rather, it had started to even build up higher than that. It had gone almost close to a 34-year-o mark. And so it just goes to show you that, I mean, I know it's an IPO, and that might not necessarily be the best <laughs> the best reference to use in terms of a stock that can take off. But the bottom line is, is that there are a lot of companies that are not based in the United States. You know, the key thing is when you're investing, to me anyway, and Adam, you can, you can certainly chime in here, you know, know what you're getting into, you know, get into a company, and I had this conversation with Chad Shoup uh, earlier this week, Buy a company that you love, or at least buy a company that you like. Don't buy a company based on a news cycle. Don't buy a company based on a headline. Buy a company that you have no problem owning. Just because if you if you gain, it's that much sweeter. If you lose, it doesn't sting nearly as bad because you're owning a company that you truly believe in. Um, so no matter what country it's based in, and I think Adam's dead on here in terms of the news cycle, it's very easy for investors to get caught up in the news cycle and trade on the news cycle. Um, we see the markets move on the news cycle and, and that's not necessarily the way, uh, in fact, it's not the way you should play your portfolio at all. I mean, you want to, you, you don't want to do that just because that is a quick way to, as I, I think Charles made an earlier reference a couple of weeks ago about just taking your money, putting it in a bag, setting it on fire and throwing it off yeah. your roof. Um, because that is exactly what's going to happen. Am I, is that, is that kind of touching on it, Adam, Charles, is that, is that sound, 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 sound about right? I agree. Yeah. Okay. I, you know, I would add, um, yeah, I would add, you have to invest in a way that you have an advantage. And if you're trying to invest based on the news cycle, what advantage do you or I have? We're, we're getting, you know, we don't have, you know, an inside mole in CNN giving us breaking news before it, it, it hits the general public. Even if we did, that would be illegal. So exactly. there's no, there's no way to have an advantage there where 
if you're doing things the way Adam does, you analyze the data, you look for your trade window where you have a highly probabilistic chance of success in that window, that's where you have an advantage. You know, that's that's where you should focus your, your trading. I don't think that's dead on. I mean, trade when you have an advantage. Don't trade just because you feel like it's a good time to trade. I like that. I, I actually like that. That's, I think, a good philosophy. I want to switch gears a little bit for the last half of, uh, of the show here and get uh, and, and, you know, talk about something else that is weighing on the minds of investors, uh, not just in the United States, but globally. And that is the economy, not, uh, not just the U.S. economy, but the global economy. Um, it, it's not necessarily official, but I, I think it's kind of a no brainer that the United States is in a recession or if not, it's, it's right there and it's going to be over into it very soon. I believe we are in a recession in terms of, of GDP growth, uh, and, and things of that nature. Um, and, and it's been a very short trip to get here. Um, you know, the coronavirus has, uh, uh, you know, it took, it took a grand total of what, two months, three months. To, it, took, it took a month to get us into a bear market and then another month after that to really push the economic indicators to suggest that, you know, we're, we're not, our GDP is not going to grow for, for two consecutive, it's going to go down two consecutive quarters. So I, I think that's, that, that is a top level view of how we got here. But my question is this, there is no shortage of speculation in terms of how long it's going to take for us to recover from this recession. There are some out there who believe we're already doing it. The market goes up, well, we're recovering from the, from the recession. Uh, and, and I want to talk to both of you about that and kind of get your takes in terms of where you think. And then I'll, I'll weigh in at the end when we, when we close up. I'll give you my thoughts, basically so I can piggyback off of one or both of you. So that's just how, I, how, I, how I'll cheat my way through it. But I'll start with Charles. Charles, you know, you look at this, you, you see the data every day, you see, you know, and, and I don't necessarily say the news, I don't, I don't want to, but you see the data, you look at it, you look at whether it's from the OECD, whether it's from, um, you know, any or any place you can get the data that shows GDP growth, and it shows uh, other economic indicators that show where we're at right now. Um, unemployment being another, uh, unemployment, another 2.1 Americans uh, file for unemployment uh, last week. So uh, give me your take, where, do, where, how long is this going to take how long is it going to take for a recovery to happen? Yeah, well, I guess I guess the first order of business is recession can't be officially declared until the end of June because that will be the second quarter of presumably declining GDP. Uh, the question, you know, the bigger question is when do we recover? Um, I think we already are starting the recovery process. It's going to be a long process, but I think we're starting it because this was a peculiar recession in which businesses did not close for lack of demand. Businesses closed and economic activity stopped because the supply, you know, by government mandate was just shot, shut down. I mean, we had forced quarantine. So as soon as those restrictions start to lift, you do have immediately some semblance of recovery. Now, does that mean that we go back to having unemployment below, you know, I, I, unemployment prior to all this happening was actually below the theoretical minimum that economists say is possible. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was in, in, in undergrad, they said the natural rate of unemployment was 4%. Like unemployment can never go below 4% for right. a sustained time because there's always somebody in between jobs. Right. Well, we got significantly below that. So we were actually in, you know, uncharted territory, if you will. Uh, we're not going back to that anytime soon, but are, you know, could we go from 15% unemployment to a more, you know, normal recessionary 10% unemployment? Yeah, of course. And I, I think we'll get there sooner rather than later. I think what was going to happen is we're going to go from end of the world crisis 
to garden variety recessionary conditions. And then from there, it's going to be maybe six months, maybe longer before we're healthy. But uh, what you will see, of course, is the markets will, I've never seen a case where the market didn't uh, start moving beforehand. And I think we, we've already seen that. So, so you're, if I, if I have it right, you're thinking end of 2020, possibly 20, beginning of 2021, that's when we should see the ship righted, correct? Probably a recession officially ends sometime in the third quarter. Um, we'll see, but I think, you know, by the, by the end of this year, for sure, it's, it's, it's not like we go back to pre-crisis levels overnight, you know, think about, think back to 2008, it took years right. for things. 20, 2010, wasn't it? From 2008, 2008 to from Well, 08 no, the to... recession ended after two quarters, I think, or three quarters. The recession didn't last that long. It, right. You know, recession, but you, know, you weren't back to pre-recession levels of employment, you know, pre-recession levels of uh, hourly income. You weren't back to, you weren't back to, you know, the good times. You, even though the recession ends, you know, you're, you're starting at a lower base. So you, we, we weren't back to, you know, pre-recession levels for a couple of years, I mean, several years. And so this one may be faster simply because we're in uncharted territory. Every, everything was different this time around. But it, it, the idea that it's V-shaped is probably a bit of a fantasy. I mean, it's you know, wishful thinking. But uh, we will get there end of the year. We're not going to be back to pre-crisis levels of economic output by end of the year. But, but right. you know, at least be heading the right direction by then. Okay. Adam, same question to you. And I want to kind of, I, I want you to kind of go on top of that. And, and let's, t let's put this in a, in an investor's perspective in terms of, um, you know, what can investors do um, in, in looking around and seeing these, the, the, this data and, and where the economy could be heading. So I, I'll, I'll give you the same question I asked Charles, and that is, where do you think this, when do we start seeing a recovery? And then I want to kind of tack onto that. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that investors will have an easier time figuring out and navigating whatever recovery is currently happening in our head than economists will and then business owners will. I mean, to kind of piggyback uh, Charles's point, the stock market is not the economy. Uh, they loosely track each other, but the stock market is forward looking, so that often makes turns ahead of the economy. Uh, if you're trying to make money in the markets, you want to be focused on what the markets are doing, not necessarily what the economy is doing. Uh, Conversely, if you're a business owner, if you're trying to decide whether to reopen your restaurant and you know what your overhead is, then yeah, maybe you want to be looking at the shape of the recovery of the restaurant industry specifically. But if you're just a stock market investor, or, you know, a multi-asset investor that's trying to figure out how to protect your assets and grow your assets over the next six year, six months, six years, whatever the case may be, then you need to be looking more at the markets than the economy. Um, this was a very atypical uh, shock. You know, typically financial crises happen either on the demand side supply side or from a financial sector, like the machinery of the financial sector. And this was really a fourth one. It was a healthcare uh, pandemic that kind of created problems in all three of those areas, both supply, demand, and financial systems. So this is very atypical, but that doesn't let us off the hook from trying to figure out how to get through it uh, with our investments. Um, you know, one thing is that it's, it's much more difficult to predict, in my opinion, the, the shape of the recovery, whether it's a L-shaped or U-shaped or W-shaped or V-shaped. Uh, my favorite one is the, the Nike swoosh-shaped. Um, so, you know, as I say that, you, you can look it up and see what each of those means. But I really think to the average investor that's listening to this podcast, it's not going to be that important to figure that piece of the puzzle out. Um, 
the markets and the economy are meant to surprise us. Very few people can forecast with perfect foresight or even you know close to perfect what's going to happen ahead. Um, what I do is tactical investing over a short period of time. A good example of why that works better, in my opinion, is the November 2016 presidential election. Uh, truly, I believe that very few folks really thought that, that Trump was going to win. Um, I think Hillary was the favorite. And that was a shocker to everybody. Uh, but what happened was that stocks took off after that, uh, pricing in the idea that he was going to be more pro-business and, and loosen regulations and whatnot. And uh, that so far has mostly been the case. Uh, but what I did is actually I did some analysis on my cycle nine alert. I have what's called a leaders and laggards board. And every single week I rank the nine to 11 major U.S. stock sectors based on a forward looking algorithm on their on their momentum. And I analyzed that. And I thought, well, what what is this algorithm? I wrote a piece on it called my algorithm saw this coming, meaning the Trump, the Trump win. And what I did is I looked back and I looked at the five or six sectors that were at the top of the list, meaning they were highly ranked by my algorithm before the election results were made known. And I looked at how those top sectors performed over the next one and three and six months versus the ones that had been lower ranked uh, ahead of the election results. And the higher ranked ones indeed outperformed the lower ranked ones. So what that tells me, that's just one example of where the market knew what was going to happen um, basically, it was hi highly ranking sectors that would perform better under a, a Trump economy than, than conversely. And so that's, that's an example where, you know, if I was to guess who would have won, I would have been wrong. But by trusting an algorithm that goes where the trends and the momentums are, that algorithm is, is smarter, so to speak, than, than I am and than most people are. So that's what I'm looking at. I don't know necessarily who's going to come out on top uh, if you were looking at the U.S.-China tensions. Uh, will one pull ahead over the next decade? Yeah, probably. I'm not sure which one it'll be. I'd like to think it's us. But I'm going to look at my, my rankings. I'm going to look at my algorithms. I'm going to look at my uh, momentum and figure out where the market is pricing opportunity now uh, for the, the months and, and years ahead, rather than trying to come up with a guesstimate or a forecast of who I think will ultimately win. I got you. That makes sense. I'll tell you, uh, you know, in terms of, of, of the economy, I'm, I'm not an economist. I, I, I worked with Ted Bauman for some, for some time and he is a, a great economist, knows his stuff. Um, and, and I learned a lot from him when I, when I was working with him. Um, I, I have to agree. This is something that we've never seen before. This is, this is, this is a, a, an economic situation that I, that is not, that no one in our lifetime has seen. Uh, and I don't even think you can say the 1918 Spanish flu comes close because I don't I don't think it does. So I, I think in terms of trying to prognosticate and, and, and figure out, okay, when does it recover? How does it recover? Things like that. I, I really don't, I don't think you can because this is so, because you're basically just kind of throwing something into the air and, and seeing what lands first. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think while well, businesses are opening up and that's great news for, for, for those businesses and, and for, for state and local economies, I think our spending habits are going to change because of, of what we've been through, um, uh, because of lockdowns, I think we are going to drastically change our spending patterns, where we spend our money, how we spend our money. I don't think the unemployment situation is going to get any better until at least the fourth quarter. Um, just because, um, I just, I think it's going to be a very slow road ahead. Now, in terms of, of, of strict recession, 
you know, that, uh, you know, I think Charles may be onto something to say by third quarter, maybe uh, maybe even fourth quarter latest, then we may be officially done with the recession. But what people have to understand is that just because a, a, a company says, okay, you've had two straight quarters of GDP growth, that doesn't mean that the effects of the recession are over. And I think that's where we tend to get bogged down a little bit. That's where we tend to get a little mixed up, in, especially with news, with, with the news cycle, because the news cycle focuses on recession. That immediately mentally thing tells us that everything is involved in the recession and that's it. And that's not accurate. That's not true. It's just like the, the stock market. Adam's right. The, the stock market is not the economy. And if you think it is, then I really hope you're not investing in the stock market because it would not be a good play for you. The stock market is separate in and of itself. And, and if you are an investor and if you are just looking at ways to make gains, recession or not probably doesn't mean a whole lot to you. Um, just simply because you know, they're only interconnected in that some of their moves are, are, are similar in nature to a degree. But it's a very small degree and it certainly is not worth betting your retirement on. Um, so if you are just strictly investing you know, you can't really get wrapped up with a recession. Um, you really can't get wrapped up with unemployment. Those type of drivers may have some sort of an impact on a particular company or a particular sector at some point in some form or fashion, but it's the sector you should be watching, not the recession numbers. You should be looking at, you know, okay, if I am invested in healthcare stocks or pharmaceutical stocks or, or information technology or 5G or whatever, whatever, whatever you're invested in, you should be paying attention to that sector not paying attention to where, where recession is, to what unemployment is. I, don't get me wrong. Unemployment is bad, and I, I, you know, 40 some million Americans applying for jobless claims is, is nothing to scoff at. But if you're looking strictly from an investment perspective, from an investor's point of view, from you, me, Charles, Adam, anyone, if you have money in the market in any way, shape, or form, $5, $10, $50,000, whatever, you're not paying attention to whether there's a recession or not. You're really not paying attention to whether there's unemployment. That is outside noise. If you are focusing strictly on your portfolio and growing your portfolio for retirement or for, a, a, in my case, a boat uh, or, or something of that, a haircut perhaps, um, you know, then you should be looking at what you're investing in, not the outside noise involved with the news cycle, whatever you see anywhere else. You need to pay attention to things like, uh, you know, you need to pay attention to guys like Adam, the guys like Charles, uh, and, and, and really pay attention to what they're telling you in terms of what you should be doing with your investments at any particular time, because it's not about whether there's a recession or not. And I think that's, that, that to me, that, that was my take. That was, I, I was, I was sitting on that one for a little bit. I, I've been stewing on that one for about a week. Uh, so I, I went a little long drawn out there. So, but, uh, I, I think, I think everyone's had good points here and and, and if you disagree, I mean, write me a note, yeah, leave me a comment, leave us a comment on uh, Apple podcast, uh, Google podcast, Spotify, email, um, you know, whatever, leave, let me know. It's like, Matt, I think you're full of it. I, and here's why I'm more than, I, I would love to see that. I would, I really would. I, I would, I would love to see that rather than God, Matt, you guys were dead on. <laughs> tell me why, tell me why you think otherwise. I think it's a good conversation to get into. Um, it's not combative. It's not political. It's not divisive. It's, it's a, it's a conversation about, um, you know, where we see investments and where we see, where, where we think investment investors should be looking, whether you are a hobbyist or whether you are a full-time trader, it doesn't matter. I, I think the, the, it applies the same Adam. Am I right? It applies the same. You should be looking at your sector, not at the recessionary news. Absolutely. I mean, especially with this type of recession or this type of economic shock, um, 
there's not going to be one economic recovery. It will not be homogenous. It will be very um, specific to the sector, even specific to the industry group, uh, to some level specific to the company. Uh, for example, the, the technology sector, the healthcare sector, they, if you look at the stock market, at least, they've already made V-shaped recoveries. They mm -hmm. may be coming into a, an economic environment that is better than it was pre-COVID, uh, whereas energy sector, the energy producers, they may be more faced with that L-shaped economic recovery where they just drag on the bottom for years and years and years. Um, restaurants may have a harder time economically uh, going ahead. So you really have to look at it sector by sector and think how has this transformational shift that's been brought about by this pandemic, uh, how's that gonna create an environment that's either better or worse for this particular sector ahead? And how can I um, use tactical strategies like trend and momentum to find uh, ways to make gains in those sectors either on the long side or the short side, frankly, um, because it will not be one recovery. It will not be one stock market recovery. It will not be one economic recovery. Um, this is really a great time to be a tactical investor, to go where the trends are now, rather than being a long-term theoretical fundamentalist uh, type of investor. And, and just as a hint before we go, um, it, it, one thing that Adam does is exactly what he just said. And he does that specifically with his Cycle 9 Alert, and he does it very well. I would encourage you to uh, go to moneyandmarkets.com and, and sift your way through and try to find more information on Cycle 9. It's there. Um, I, I don't think you'll be disappointed. And, and that's, that's my shameless plug for you, Adam. And, but, I, but I don't think it's shameless because I think it's dead on. So, uh, Charles, parting shots uh, before we head into the weekend. No, I think I think Adam's right. Uh, this is a time to, um, you know, don't fight the trends here. Um, adapt to them. Uh, you don't want to be the guy trying to call the exact bottom, the exact top, the exact turn. Um, really, that's difficult even under normal circumstances. It's even more difficult now. So um, identify the trends and, and latch onto them. Exactly. Adam, parting shot for, for the weekend? Yeah, and, and don't fight the Fed. I mean, the Fed is uh, pulled, pulling out the bazooka, and whether you like it or not, whether you think it creates uh, further instabilities longer term, um, that won't necessarily make you money to be a hero. Um, don't try to pick a, a top and bottom. And, and if, if the liquidity is there and the trends are higher, um, stick your neck out on the line for some sector plays that are on the long side. And uh, you know, using a shorter term holding period, like two to three months with Cycle 9 Alert, which is what we do, um, that allows us to be nimble. That allows us to adapt. One of the things is we, you know, we didn't see phase one or wave one of COVID coming. Uh, we might have a better chance of seeing wave two come if it does. But nobody really knows if or when that's going to come. Maybe we get the vaccine before, maybe we don't. Um, so really, you know, if you want to take a shorter term approach in this environment, it makes a lot of sense because if you need to pull back your risk or, or shift into other sectors that uh, end up rising to the top, you know, come fall or come next winter when things get hairy again, potentially, um, then you've, you've basically committed to shorter term investments rather than longer term. Exactly. So we're going to leave it right there. We've, we've covered a lot of ground and, and it's the great thing about a podcast is you can always go back and listen again. We encourage you to. And if you do have questions, uh, comments, concerns, you can leave us a review on Apple, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio. You can email us. Uh, email address will be in the in the notes. So make sure you uh, drop us a line. Let us know what you think. Uh, we'll have much, much more next week. Uh, join us uh, again a week from today, Friday. We'll have Adam and Charles back on. We'll talk about a, a wealth of great stuff and 
involving the market and uh, uh, give you safe, uh, sound, uh, profitable advice on what you can do um, in, in the markets with your investments. So for Adam O'Dell, uh, Chief Investment Officer for Money and Markets, Charles Sizemore, Money and Markets Contributor, I am Matt Clark. Hope everyone has a great weekend. Uh, the weather is nice in sunny South Florida, so hopefully it is nice where you are at as well. Enjoy it. And uh, we will talk to you again next week. You've been listening to The Bull and the Bear here on moneyandmarkets.com. You've been listening to The Bull and the Bear, a Money and Markets podcast. Tune in each week to hear insights on how to make investing safe and profitable for you. Thank you.